Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. It's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end time watchwoman, Sheila Zelensky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this very special edition, Tuesday, January 20th, 2015. Well, January 2015 is rolling along, and as of Monday, January 19th, yesterday, I am broadcasting now off WWCR, and I'm very glad to have you on the broadcast today, folks. And I'd like to give a big shout out to the Worldwide Christian Radio listeners all across North America. A big shout out to you, folks. Please don't forget to bookmark weekendvigilante.com and shoot me an email and let me know how you like the new launch of the show this week. We had some issues last week with it broadcasting, so we are playing some of the shows from last week this week, folks, but this is a live broadcast today. We had so many WWCR listeners that requested the Steve Quayle and Tom Horn show that we did a rebroadcast on that, and we are also doing a rebroad on the Timothy Alberino show from last Wednesday. Incredible show if you didn't get a chance to listen. And I'm really glad that tomorrow the WWCR listeners will get a chance to hear that. And there's a few ways to listen now. So one is listening live from my website. And for those of you with smart devices and iPads, you can download an app called MixLR. That's M-I-X-L-R. That's MixLR and search Weekend Vigilante. And please do follow me on MixLR to get updates. You can also follow me on Podomatic, which is where my podcast will be available. You simply go to my website under Show Archives tab on the menu button, and you can listen to any show via podcast. I really want to thank Steve Quayle for sponsoring my show because airtime's expensive, and without his help, I wouldn't be able to do this show and wouldn't be able to get this good information out to you, precious folks. So also, I just wanted to let people know that Steve has a new book out called Little Creatures. It's available for order on his website at stevequayle.com. Folks, get a copy of this book. Incredible. Give out a few to people, and uh, you might want to give one to your pastor, too. Just an update on Remnant Roundup. It's under construction right at present, and I will have some updates as soon as possible. But it does need funding, folks, so please prayerfully consider donating to that project. I think it is a very incredible project to connect the end-time saints, and especially as our internet is getting more heavily attacked 
you never know when we wake up one day and we don't have it. So let's try to connect people from your areas, gathering the end time saints. And finally, there's a lot of work, folks, that go into doing a daily broadcast. And I'm asking for you to prayerfully consider doing what you can financially to support my show and ministry. Speaking of powerful ministries, Augusto Perez is having an event in Texas coming up January 30th through February 1st. For details, go to my website and click on the January 20th show and it's linked there. And you can find out more information. But if you're going to be in Texas, folks, get out to see Augusto. I can tell you from being at the last event where I got to stand on the front lines doing prayer and deliverance and healing, I'll tell you, it was very powerful outpouring the Holy Ghost. And also just to let you know, any spirit-filled believers out there, if you want to pray with us, please join my weekly prayer group. They now meet Wednesdays at 4 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And again, if you want to pray with us, the info is on my website by clicking on that little picture to the right that says join our prayer team. I want to say God bless you all and thank you for your continued prayers. So folks, my guest, without further ado, Dr. Danny Morano, you know him as a very inspirational teacher. He is the author of God is Not Religious. He inspires and encourages Christians to move beyond the habit and practice of mere church attendance, religious spectatorship and self-interest which have been the seeds of the present complacency and spiritual decline in our postmodern culture and really plug into the deeper things of God. His series, I'll tell you, on the Sinner's Prayer Gospel is incredible. So check out that by going to the link there at weekendvigilante.com in the bio. You can see Danny's website and his show link there. And buy his book, Sinner's Prayer Gospel. I've read it and wow, you need to order a copy for yourself and your cotton candy churchianity friends. It is very powerful And we do want to support ministries like Danny's. So without further ado, welcome to the program, Danny Morano. Nice to have you back on. Thank you, Sheila. I'm uh, very happy to be here with you tonight and uh, just look forward to a good time, as always. It's always fun having you on the program. And it's so insightful because, you know, one of the things I love that you say in your book, and I mean, the premise of your book, the Sinner's Prayer Gospel, I guess the the cold notes version really is that we live in a society, we live in a time and a place now where absolutely anything goes. And we've now sort of had a culmination of absolute obliteration of the full gospel. And now it's just okay if you say a sinner's prayer when you're eight, you are good to go. There's nothing really requiring you to step out of your box, do really anything. As long as you accept Jesus into your heart at seven or eight or nine, you're good to go. I mean, that is kind of a sci-fi of really what the scripture says, isn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, it's really kind of a throwback to what most of these churches claim through their history to have departed from. Having come out of the Roman Catholic system, which is also based on, you know, uh, the recitation of certain prayers and and masses and different things like that and you know the original protestant reformation was breaking away from all those things and saying that no this was a discipleship and this was really only by faith and uh, this accepting jesus as your savior i mean this is really a modern concept this really came in with the revival movement that started uh you know really to bloom in the 19th century you know, under the evangelists, you know, the Wesleys and the Finneys and people like this. Whitfield came a little earlier in the end of the uh, 18th century, but it really started to bloom in the 
kind of in the middle of the 19th century where these revivals started to break out in the United States of America, which of course was a pioneering venture. You know, people came over here from Europe basically, and they were going for new virgin land. It was it was a pioneer episode. And so everything was new. There were no bounds and it was really the uh the advent of the individual. You know, in Europe there was no understanding really of the individual. It was still very collective. In other words, and if you still go over there today, you know, in certain parts, like I lived in Germany for several years, even in the town where I lived, even though people see themselves as individuals on one side, on the other, there's still an idea of this very tight-knit community, collective, because everything is smaller, closer together. Whereas in the States, everything was totally spread out, brand new. People had no idea what they were getting into. And it took a lot of faith. And so, uh, you know, and of course the church was not developed like it was in Europe, you know, so, so well formed and uh, as an institution. So there was a lot more freedom and, uh, these evangelists realized they had to start to appeal to the individual, this pioneering individual, this entrepreneur. This was also a new concept. I bring this out in the book quite a bit as I go through the history of where this came from. And so America was built on that whole pioneering entrepreneur, you know, we're the land of the quote unquote self-made millionaire, you know, there isn't this tradition of, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents before that, my great grandparents, they passed this down to me. America became the place where you came to stake your own claim, right? They used to have those races where they would run to stake out land. And some of the listeners might have seen that uh, movie with Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, about 20 years ago. Far and Away, it was called. And they showed you how they used to have these races to run, to stake their claim, to, to get their land, you know. So that was the mentality, and it was the birth of the individual. So the evangelist started to appeal for individual salvation. And that was a major change in the way people looked at faith because up to that point they really still looked at it as being part of the church as opposed to well i have my own personal relationship with christ you know and yes i I may go to church and be involved in the church but it's my own personal business you know to myself and so this accepting christ this developed. It didn't start that way, but it developed to a point where a lot of the, the sacraments and a lot of the rituals were laid aside because of the inconvenience of them, especially in the evangelistic setting where they were out in the open fields, you know, under air, and the evangelist was just preaching. So he would have people make this commitment to say the what we would call now the sinner's prayer. In other words, a prayer of repentance to commit yourself to Christ, you know, and then it was understood that they would go and and join the churches in their towns or whatever. But of course, at that time, it was still a very strong message of repentance, and they had what they called the mourner's bench, okay, where people would come and sweat it out and, and weep and repent before God. That evolved into what we called the altar, and eventually that went away as well, and now we're we're down to kind of uh, let's have every eye closed, no no one looking around, you know, and just raise your hand or say this prayer with me and accept Christ as your Savior. Well, this is a totally 
modern invention. I call it a witty invention in the sinner's prayer gospel. This was not known, of course, not known to the original apostles and people who followed Christ. This sort of originated right in the garden. When you look at the serpent, the the subtlety, I mean, he really was the subtlest of all creatures. So you really have that deception. You really have it at the very beginnings because, you know, something you said that is really interesting to me in your book, and I thought this was so incredibly insightful. You said that it's not false religion even nowadays and heathenism. We're not talking about society. We're talking about full-blown, complete apostasy in the church, not just in society, not just the ungodly, yes. but right, it's happening right in the church. And I love how, going back to the subtlety, you really purport that Satan became the creator of religion apostasy and here's say, kind of in an all-clean, one-sweep and it's so interesting yes. that he really hijacked and perverted God's revelations, really. And he presented this more carnally appealing interpretation of it. And that's really where we're at today. It's just kind of a Burger King religion. You know, you walk into mm-hmm. a buffet, you kind of pick and choose whatever you want. You just, you know, a little eclectic mishmash of this and that. But it's an absolute perversion of the gospel, isn't it? Yes. Well, I actually call the serpent the first theologian, you know, the first one to kind of reinterpret God's word, <laughs> you know, and Satan th- does that. And, and I also bring out, yes, that the fallen angels are the creators of religion. And it all comes down to what we understand these things to be there. You know, these these things that we refer to religion, church, uh, you know, what are these things really? You know, did Jesus come to start a new religion called Christianity? Most people would say yes. They think that he did, that he came to replace, you know, what we would call Judaism or the Jewish religion with the religion of Christianity. And then, you know, a few centuries later, Muhammad came to change uh, to a new religion called Islam. But the bottom line is Jesus, God in the flesh, if we really believe that, as the scripture calls him, Emmanuel, God with us, you know, God himself taken on the form of human flesh. He didn't come here to give us a new religion. And that goes back to the garden as well, which when we go back to the garden, we ask ourselves, okay, this is important because if we say we're lost, right, we use these terms saved, lost. Okay, well, let's stick with those terms for a minute. If we're lost, what did we lose? And if we're saved, what are we getting saved from? So what do we lose in the Garden of Eden? If we believe in the concept of original sin, which was brought out by the church fathers, you know, Augustine gets credit for that, but it was preached even before that. And if you really study the writings of Paul, he really preaches the same thing, you know, that that this was transmitted, was passed on from Adam and Eve to all of the human race, you know, genetically and spiritually. So what did they lose in the Garden of Eden? That's the question. Well, let's take a look at what, what went on in the Garden of Eden. Well, we're told that, first of all, God prepared that paradise for them, right? And his uh, intent in preparing that paradise for them was really as a classroom, as a glorious classroom for them, because God was going to interact with them. God was going to be in communion and relationship with them. And we see that in Genesis, uh, that 
I believe, the Word of God. And there are other, uh, you know, writings that I find very inspiring, such as the books of Adam and Eve, and so that were done at a later date, perhaps. But uh, really bring out that relationship and speak of this Logos or this Word who came to commune with Adam and Eve and to teach them in the garden, which corresponds with the accounts in Genesis and uh, Jubilees and Jasher, so uh, where God would come into the garden, right? And we see the we see the extent of the intimacy that Adam must have had with with this Word of God, with this God who came to the garden in the cool of the day, as Genesis tells us, because something very interesting happens after Adam and Eve sin, and that is that Adam hears the sound of God's footsteps in the garden. Now, I mean, think about it. I know some people pretty well, but I don't know if I could recognize their footsteps. So Adam must have had a very intimate relationship with this God to be able to know. I mean, there were animals running around. All kind of things were going on in the garden that made noises rustling in the leaves and sounds on the ground. But yet Adam recognized the footsteps of his God coming into the garden. Of course, because he had sinned, then he hid himself. But what did he do before that? Before he sinned, he didn't hide himself. He probably looked forward to those visitations from whom I believe were undertaken by the eternal Son of Man, which we would know now to be Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, Christ in his pre-incarnate existence. In other words, before he came and uh, took on the form of human flesh, uh, the eternal son of man, as, as is brought out in the book of Enoch so beautifully, and I bring that out, I think even in that book, in some of my other writings as well, you know, he pre-existed and he was God and he is God. That's why John starts off, in the beginning was the word, the logos, right? And the same was with God, the same was God, the same was with God in the beginning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he was dwelling among Adam and Eve, okay? And that's the intimacy that they had. I mean, when did God relay this information about the trees, what trees they could eat of, what trees they couldn't? God had a very intimate relationship. Often ask people this question, Sheila. I say, listen, what religion was practiced in the Garden of Eden? And people say, what? What are you talking? I say, well, come on. We're talking about religion, right? We associate God with religion, and I bring this out in God is Not Religious, the book a lot. Okay, so what religion did Adam and Eve practice? Okay, did they practice Judaism? Did they practice Islam? Did they practice Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity? What, what religion did they practice? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, all right. Well, let's make it a little more simple. What kind of religious institution did they have in the Garden of Eden? For instance, was there a church there? Was there a synagogue? Was there a mosque, Hindu temple? What was there? And eventually the conversation will come around where people say, well, there was nothing there. and There was no religion because they spoke directly with God and God spoke directly with them. And I say, bingo, exactly. So now we're getting to what we lost, all right, because... There was a division that occurred, right? When, when the sin occurred and when the word of God came in looking for Adam and Adam was hiding himself and then he asked him, 
Why are you hiding? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? Did you do what I did not say and uh, to do? And that's why you feel guilty and shameful and you're hiding yourself now. So now the relationship changes. Now we have the beginnings or the seeds of what later will become religion, which is based on distance between God and man due to the guilt and shame associated with sin. And that's where Satan and the fallen angels and eventually the demons after they came into the picture, that's what they have capitalized on. And they've built a whole system which actually serves more as a barrier to God instead of a gateway to God. He Now Satan presents this fake church, which we can get into too when we get into the definition of church, but let's just say at this point, a whole system that the fallen angels and the demons set up, which is a deception, it appears to man that it's built as a bridge to God, but it's actually built more like that wailing wall over in Jerusalem, a blockade to God, and people are just kind of banging their heads up against this hard stone wall, praying and praying and praying and not really getting any answers in return. And that's religion. So religion is the ultimate deception that Satan brought into the vacuum that was created through man's disobedience uh, to God. See, and man today, when he thinks about God, he thinks about God seeing him from a distance or being able to communicate with him only from a distance. Where does that come from? That comes from the guilt associated with sin, okay? But Jesus Christ did not come to improve on that boundary, improve on that barrier, you know, make the wall out of softer material, so to speak. No, he came, the scripture tells us, Paul writes, or the writer of Colossians writes, whoever the writer was really, uh, that that wall which separates us between man and God, those, you know, the, that handwritings and ordinances and laws and commandments, all those things that have separated us from God, Christ has wiped that away or torn that down by his sacrifice on the tree. So that's the good news, and that's what we lost. We lost the intimacy. We lost the intimacy with God, and that's what we had at the beginning. God did not create a religion. Otherwise, he would have started out that way in the garden to begin with, right? We would read about in Genesis. No, we don't read about any of that. What we read about is a kind of a patristic relationship, a father-son, father-daughter, father-children relationship, not this cold and hard and, and indifferent, sterile religious exercise. Well, and it's really this very... Bible stacking, legalistic, dogmatic kind of overtones that are woven into everything. And I mean, you know, you mentioned a lot about Satan really being the originator of religion, apostasy, and hearsay in a sweep, but he's had some time to plot this all out. All these, I like how you say false line upon false precept upon precept, century yes. after century. So it really has kind of become the proverbial frog in the boiling water. I mean, people, Danny, are so acclimated to this anything goes nowadays. I mean, if you don't embrace 
homosexuality in the church now, you are a mean, judgmental, dangerous person. I mean, come on, Danny. Abortion's just freedom of choice, and homosexuality is just alternative lifestyle. These abhorrent euphemisms. But here's the question I have. Who moved the goalposts here? Because if you look back, even a couple decades ago, when you look at the standards that were in society, I mean, my goodness, the people did not embrace all these multiple partners and homosexuality and just raving debauchery. There actually was something to be said for being married and not having children out of wedlock and good family values. But it's almost like there's no height from which we're going to plummet here. We've already got our hip waders walking around knee deep in the sewage. You know, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And the thing is this, unfortunately, as much as even Christians are so hyper about prosperity, historically prosperity has always proven to end up bringing a civilization or a nation or whatever you want to call it into this direction right it's amazing when you th when we think of sodom and gomorrah i mean you bring up the homosexual thing right and now everyone uses the word gay and you know this is a brand new word this came out with mtv in the 80s there was no gay when i was growing up as a kid no one talked about gay you heard gay you heard in the jimmy stewart movies you heard in the bing crosby songs and i mean all the way up into the 60s and 70s when somebody said gay they were talking about someone who was happy and, and, and enjoying, but it had nothing to do with any type of perverted sexual activity or alternative lifestyle. This is a new invention. In fact, it was associated, however, with Sodom and Gomorrah because the, uh, the initial uh, term that was used for so, so many centuries, you know, when it had to do with male uh, homosexuality, of course, was sodomy. And that was the charge Officially, if you got arrested in the 1950s, 1960s, you know, in a supposed gay bar, okay, such an establishment or whatever, you were charged with sodomy. Well, where did they get that association? Well, they got it from Sodom and Gomorrah, where apparently this was practiced without restraint. But again, we read about Sodom and Gomorrah pretty much at the very end of their decline. I mean, when they were ready to step into their demise, when God was going to destroy them. I mean, there are references to the kings of Sodom and, and so on a little earlier when Abraham had to rescue Lot and stuff. But a little bit later on is when God was going to bring this judgment. But what's interesting when you read in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah actually gives us a lot more revelation about the situation. And what led up to this totally debased society, I mean, where a society that was, was so unhealthy for the rest of mankind that God decided that he had to wipe it out, you know, uh, what Isaiah says, he asked the question, what was the sin of your sister Sodom, he asked the people, right? What was the sin of your sister Sodom? And if I would ask that to people, uh, especially you know, a lot of right-wing Republican kind of religious people, they would say, well, that was that gay stuff. That was that homosexuality. That's why God did it. Well, that's not what the scripture says, though. Isaiah says, the sin of your sister Sodom was fullness of bread, ease of life, and pride and not caring about the poor and the oppressed. Isn't that interesting?
So it started off with prosperity, really. When you look at Rome, the decline of, of and fall of Rome, and you don't have to go to sacred sources for that, in other words, scriptures, even though Paul gives us a whole resume in Romans 1 especially about you know what, where Rome was at and where it was headed and all the debased behavior and so. But you can read it in the secular historians too, the historians of that time period and the historians of recent days, you know, like Edward Gibbons and people like this that have written these, you know, uh, volumes on what brought Rome down. But really what brought Rome down is it became secure in its prosperity and its power and all that, and it started to then exercise very little discipline on itself and on its people and it started to become a permissive society it got bored see when you're starving to death you don't have time to be bored when you're you're trying to get yourself established you don't have a lot of time to get bored but when you're rich and prosperous and you have everything that you need then you get bored and you start now to First of all, think very highly of yourself, pride, thinking that you know, you're know you different than everyone else and the rules that apply to others don't apply to you because obviously you've proven to be superior intellectually and even morally, you think. So you can allow for certain deviations away from what has proven to be healthy for a society. And that's what happens with these societies. They fall from within. They rot from within. Just like with Rome. It wasn't the barbarians who came in one day. It wasn't that one day they decided we're going to go up against this mighty empire, Rome, and we're going to take them down. No. It was a decaying from the inside, step by step by step, and all of a sudden, okay, and people can relate to this today, the borders started to weaken. So it started on the borders. But what caused that? Well, what caused that was inner corruption. And I mean, when you read about the, you know, the Caesars and, and their total, you know, licentious living and the insanity that, you know, that pervaded the later and later Caesars, you know, you can see where Rome was just decaying from the inside. And that's what eventually brought it down. Well, this is what we see here now in the United States of America. You know, and I think that Rome also thought, you know, that in the beginning, God created Rome, you know, and that's what people today over here, especially in the United States of America, think in the beginning, God created the United States of America. <laughs> well, we know the United States of America, you know, even if it wasn't just a corporation owned by rich tyrants from other places, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say it really is a country. OK, even if so has only been here for under 250 years. I mean, this is nothing. This is like not even an apostrophe in the sentence of history. But people that have grown up here, they think this is everything and all that has ever been. And we are the all-powerful United States of America, and it could never happen to us. This is why 9-11 was, was such an earth-shaking thing for Americans. And the forces that plotted that knew it would be that. They knew that they could scare these Americans into submission very quickly because they had never experienced this kind of terror on their own soil. They had never experienced a foreign invasion. You know, a civil war is something different. That's a spat within the family, right? But coming from the outside, from another quote-unquote religion, from another culture or civilization that hates us, according to our own ignorant opinion of they have no reason to, 
All right. And that shocked the Americans. They would have instituted martial law at that moment, Sheila. I believe the Americans would have accepted it. That's how easily they would have been dominated because it was something that was so foreign to them. Now, compare that with Israel, for instance, who goes through that you know, every couple of weeks, every couple of months. They're not going to fall down and bow right away just because there's some terrorism that occurs you know, because they've grown up in that environment. But here in the extreme West, okay, I won't say Europe because Europe knows what it's like. That's why Europe is like, yeah, let the United States play police. We're not getting our ass kicked again. We got wiped out, man. We watched our cities blown to bits. We were standing on those bread lines. We were afraid we were going to starve to death. We were taken over by communism. We don't want to go back there. They have a memory. They can remember that. But what can America remember? America can't remember. Maybe the African-American community can remember, you know, uh, pre-civil rights and slavery. You know, then maybe they can remember that. It's a little fresher. But, I mean, the rest of the demographic of the states, what, what can they really look back to and say, well, I don't want that to happen again. You see? Right. We can see this imperialist dictator at the helm to a complete Marxist communist system. And it's really interesting that we are now in a society. I think this is the piece because, you know, you mentioned moral decay. I mean, did you ever think in all your time, Danny, that we would be in a in a place in society where preaching against sin would get you absolutely ostracized. You know, if you're preaching against sin now, I mean, because wickedness and uh, apathy and derelict debauchery are lauded, whereas if you preach against sin, you're bigoted, you're prejudiced, you're closed-minded, and you're dangerous. And in fact, this was so incredible. I actually watched a video that one of my friends at the Department of Defense sent me, and there was a group of scientists. It was a very sort of closed, backdoor, classified meeting a group of geneticists and scientists came together and they had a little mini conference where they talked about being able to isolate that part of the brain that it's the part of the brain that worships God because now they want you to be tolerant. They don't want you worshiping God now because that's dangerous. Let's just remove the part of the brain that is responsible for those radical conservative Christians because we are labeled now as dangerous isn't that stunning yes well with you know someone who holds those archaic belief systems is seen as a dissident because they challenge the status quo of the call them the intolerant toleration preachers you know i mean they talk about tolerance but they're very intolerant about it, your disagreement with them about tolerance so they cancel <laughs> out their very you know their very premise themselves because it you know they're ready to throw you in a camp and have you exterminated if you disagree with their desire for everyone to be tolerant so how tolerant is that but again because we have no sense of history as uh you know north hemispheres. We have no sense of history. We are not really in touch directly with what goes on in other parts of the world when it comes to those who've had to live out their faith. We've understood this to be a right under Satan's rule. Okay? And this is where we're deceived. And this is why I define so much 
in my teachings about who the church really is and who the true church has been throughout history. And the problem with us is that what we've understood to be the church has become so culturally appeasing, so culturally copacetic with the culture that then we're surprised all of a sudden when they stand up, the culture stands up and says, okay, we're going to move the marker a little further now. Because we've been going, like you said, about the frog in the boiling pot, you know, step by step, as long as it hasn't touched us directly. And I talked about in my book, American Dream, when I saw in the, you know, in the 80s where this, this whole kind of Christianity getting involved in right-wing politics thing kicked in, you know, with the Jerry Falwells and the Pat Robertsons and Moral Majority and all that business, all right? And they were getting a lot of promises from the culture, from the politicians and the whole government structure. If you get your people to empower us, we will then give you your rights, which are demanded you. And, of course, people are convinced here, Christians in the uh, United States of America are, are convinced that the Bill of Rights is a chapter in the New Testament, you know, and the Constitution is part of the Gospels. So when they hear that language, they think, oh, yes, this is God doing this. This is God moving. But I warned in that writing. I said, listen, you know, nothing is ever free in this world. Okay? Everyone says that. You don't need to be a Christian to know that. The world says this. There's nothing free in this world. So if they're giving you something, at some point they're going to demand something from you back. And I warned them. I said, you're going to be called upon to back up tyranny. You're going to be called upon to enter into backing up war and these other imperialist goals of the real regime that's really ruling behind this Washington, D.C. facade. And that applies to everything. So you have to understand the institution, the church, okay, the institution, the church, which was originally created and baptized officially under Constantine the Great in the 4th century, okay? That's when Satan pulled off, in my opinion, his greatest move, where he took what was an outcasted, persecuted, countercultural movement called the Way, okay, the Ecclesia, which means in the original Greek, the gathering together of the called out, that's who the believers in Christ initially were. But they started to slip away, you know, over the decades, they started to slip away and become more organized and started to exalt the bishop and this and that and the other. And Satan was starting to set them up. But even with that, he still couldn't get full control. And even when he brought the persecutions, he couldn't stamp it out. So eventually he took it over. He hijacked. The whole concept. He said, if you can't beat them, join them. Okay, I try to stamp them out. You remember in Revelation, it says the woman runs into the wilderness and, and the flood comes out of the dragon's mouth and tries to drown the woman. Right. Well, that's kind of what happened in Constantine's error and going forward. Is Satan said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to flood this concept of the church out with culture. I'm going to baptize it in the Roman culture. And that's what he did. So almost overnight, 
a persecuted people, countercultural, were inundated with the culture and with people that were not truly believers. And they flooded out a newly ordained institution of the state called the church. And that's what we've had ever since. And that's what we have in the United States of America today. And I don't care if pastor thinks he's cool, gets up there in jeans and a, and a T-shirt on Sunday, and the music is kind of a bad version of U2. It doesn't matter what it, how contemporary it is, okay, or how high churched it is, like the, you know, the traditional Roman Catholic mask or Episcopalian or Anglican or those higher churches, okay? It doesn't matter which form it takes. The bottom line is that the institution we call the church, which is a satanic counterfeit of the invisible nation that Christ birthed at Pentecost through the Holy Spirit, okay, which is a people of the Spirit, in the spirit realm that only God ultimately knows who is part of that family and who isn't, his mystical bride, okay, the body of Christ. We have an institution that Satan has put up as a counterfeit called the church. And people go to this institution and they worship what they understand to be Christ. Most of the time, it's a Jesus of their own invention, okay, depending on which type of institution you go to, all right? But most of the time, it's a Jesus that fits in with their culture, you know? They've created, in the, you know, in the beginning, man created God in his image. This is, this is what we have now. The opposite of what the scripture tells us. In the beginning, God created man in his image. The other way around. Man, modern man or postmodern man, has now created God or Jesus for Christians in his own image. Culturally, uh, how can I say? If you can fit it into the culture. You follow? If you take a macro view and step back and... Think about what you said. God created man in his image, and now man has created God in his image. He's molded God into whatever that looks like. You know, you talk about churches nowadays. I mean, churches, there's absolutely no reverence in these places of worship. I mean, now it's just, you You talked about the music. I mean, they're just social clubs where, you, you know, they move them in, they move them out, stick your feet up on the rail, grab a soy latte, and listen to a five-point PowerPoint on nothing about Jesus Christ, nothing about the gospel. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, people are historically illiterate, but here's the problem. You throw in the mix that they're also completely biblically illiterate, I mean, that is a combination and a culmination of a total sci-fi, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The scripture is not at the center at all anymore. So people don't know who this Jesus is. As I said, they make up their own Jesus. Okay. And these life coaches, you know, most of them, as I've said, you know, on my own show, I can't even call them pastors or preachers or teachers anymore. Motivational snake oil salesmen, as far as I'm concerned, they're selling a culture. You follow? They're selling a culture. They're selling to people. Listen, you can add this Christianity to your postmodern American lifestyle. Make it part 
of your lifestyle. Well, what set the Christians apart in the first couple of centuries of the real ecclesia in the Roman Empire? What set them apart was that they were counter-cultural. Because the emperor didn't mind. The emperor said, listen, you can worship this Jesus, this carpenter that we crucified. You have your little services about him and all. That's fine. As long as you retain the standard of the culture and also sacrifice to the gods of Rome. You see that? So they actually were not torn apart by lions, burned at the stake, whatever it may have been, whatever their martyrdom entailed. These things did not happen because they worshipped this Jesus. Why it happened ultimately, and, and you know, secular and, and church historians agree on these points. The reason that this happened was because they would not compromise with the culture. They would not also... Okay, and I put the stress on also bow down to the gods of the culture. Now, I'm going to bring it out. Okay, is that not what patriotism is? Is patriotism not a mixture of me being allowed to worship my guy? I'm thinking of Kiefer Sutherland and a few good men. Have you seen that movie? It's his son, Jesus Christ, and the only book on my night table is the Bible. And so, All right, but he was a, an army man, right? So he was a patriot. So he was worshiping the gods of war, the gods of money, the gods of mythology, of Americanism. All right. And also adding now what he understood the Bible to be and what he understood, you know, the Jesus that he created in his own mind and so forth. And that's what we have in this country. And the majority of even what you would call fundamentalist or evangelical Bible believing Christians, even, okay? have this mixture so prevalent in their religion of Christianity. Okay, so they are allowed, okay, by the beast, they're allowed to worship this Jesus, okay, whatever Jesus they want to worship. And the closer to Wall Street and the closer to Pennsylvania Avenue, the better, of course, but even if you're into some kind of civil rights Jesus or, or homosexual Jesus, it doesn't matter, all right? As long as you also bow down to the gods of this United States of apostasy. And this is why the stage can be shared between Mormons, Jews, Muslims, evangelical Christians, they can all stand on the same platform and stand for the values and the rights of religious people in the United States of America. They can't go to the same churches on Sunday because they disagree doctrinally on points that ultimately, if you think about it, a lot of them are not that important. But what they can agree upon is the ascendancy of this idol called the United States of America. You know, when you're talking about this sort of American gospel, 
I think you're you're really hitting the nail on the head because we kind of have this mixed cocktail of liberty and guns and constitutional patriotism, and it is a distortion of the gospel. It's been woven into this American gospel, and the problem is now, Danny, you have a generation who cannot relate to the power of the Holy Ghost. We're not going to run any of this thing through what we call the gospel Holy Spirit filter. When you look back in the early church, they had the boldness of the Holy Ghost. Remember what Christ said to them, you don't go anywhere until I send the Comforter, and then you will be my witnesses with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. If you look in Acts 2 and 4, remember the whole place was shaking and they were filled with boldness. I mean, they were threatened with imprisonment and death. And you look at Daniel in the lion's den or Jonah in the whale or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the running theme of this is they weren't going to bow down to the system. These aren't just nice little stories. Throughout history, the power of the Holy Spirit, especially in the New Testament church, they stood for Christ. And I think that's a piece where we're missing today. Yes. And I mean, you see that, as you said, pointed out clearly in the scriptures. Are the cultures of the world in submission to God? No. No, Right? Not at all. Okay. Otherwise, I mean, the whole temptation that Satan brought to Christ doesn't make any sense. Right. If the cultures of Jesus's day were already in submission to God, it would make no sense for Satan to say, all this belongs to me and I have the power to offer it to you if you bow down to me. Right. So that tells us that this world system and it's spoken in many parts of the scripture in different ways. Okay, the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan in a system, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, in other words, those who are not surrendered to God, who have not come into God's kingdom, and on and on and on. Many, many scriptures that tell us that this world system is under the influence and the control of these evil powers until Christ comes back in victory. All right? So, These cultures are influenced and driven ultimately by these devils and demons. Now, God is in there, like it says in Romans 13, in the proper understanding of it. God is sovereignly working behind the scenes to keep evil in check by allowing men to create laws and systems of law to keep evil from, you know, just blowing the whole world up in a week. That's the only reason that we've lasted is because God, in spite of Satan and his forces, has instituted into even fallen man Uh, enough of an understanding of moral rectitude and what makes sense to create law, to keep evil in check. But ultimately, as we come toward the end, this is what 2 Thessalonians is talking about when it talks about the appearance of that lawless one, that wicked one, and that the world has to come to such a condition where it creates an environment for that lawless one that one who represents all that Satan has to offer to be able to stand up and to rule. Well, that's where we're headed now. But we still have at this point, even in all its perversion, like we're talking about tonight, we still have certain pillars of law that hold things from completely imploding, you know, completely falling down on themselves. But eventually that will give out. Eventually that will give out. And that's what's happening. And more and more that society 
is influenced by the evil powers and this fake church that is also part of the society who has been deceived into believing that they're set apart from the society because they sing Jesus songs on Sunday, continue to capitulate to the spirit of the age, the more and more we're headed toward that ultimate manifestation and revelation of what we understand to be antichrist and false prophet and the whole tribulation scenario. Well, and I think it's so crucial as we enter into an era, really, of the great delusion. The scripture warns us about what's going to happen, obviously, in the last days. Every sign is flashing that we're on the cusp of this. And the deception, if you read the scripture, is said to be so strong that if it were possible, even God's elect would be deceived. So the author is really bringing an analysis of the true relationship and commitment that Christ offers and demands of those whom, as you referred to the Ecclesia, you know, he's really talking about having a vibrant, personally rewarding and powerful relationship with the living Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. But I think that's where this countercultural church is missing the boat, isn't it? Yes, the Holy Spirit is the key. And I've even written in the Sinner's Prayer Gospel that this line in the sand today is not drawn at the concept of the person of Jesus Christ, because as I said, you know, people have created many of their own Jesuses. Even this Jesus can be acclimated now to the culture, but it's drawn at the line in the sand of the true ministry of Jesus Christ in the earth today, right? I often ask people this question. I say, does Jesus have a ministry on the earth today? Is Jesus ministering in the earth today? And a lot of times they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, how is that possible? Because he's not here, right? We have so many scriptures that tell us clearly that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, right? The book of Hebrews talks about his ministry now in the new covenant era as a ministry of intercession for us in heaven. So how is Jesus ministering the earth? Well, Jesus did his ministry 2,000 years ago. And then he told us he was sending another, and you mentioned it earlier, another comforter, right? And this comforter, this helper, this guide, this spirit of wisdom, this spirit of truth, this spirit of Christ's power, this spirit of prophecy, all his different functions. This Holy Spirit is the ruler who reigns in the true ecclesia of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is today bringing forth the ministry of Jesus Christ through the believers in Jesus Christ. But if I reject the Holy Spirit, what do I mean by reject the Holy Spirit? What I mean by reject the Holy Spirit is to do the same thing that I talked about doing with Jesus, make the Holy Spirit what I'm comfortable with. He's quiet. He's invisible. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't really do anything that's outlandish or out of the ordinary that might be esteemed as embarrassing. He's not bold and loud. He fits right in with the tolerant culture. He's nicey, nice, smiley, smiley. Okay, well, when I go to the New Testament, that's not what I read about the Holy Spirit. Okay, and, and I love these guys with the still small voice from Elijah. Like that was the only manifestation of the Spirit of God throughout the whole Scripture. The Scripture wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit at that time. That was under the Old Covenant. And that was only one instance. What about on the day of Pentecost? 
Was he a still small voice when he came as a rushing mighty wind? Was he two chapters later, like you said, when he shook the whole house, okay? When he caused the earthquake at Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus died, gave up the ghost, and he shook the whole earth and, and tore the veil in the temple. And so the Holy Spirit is not just quiet, nice, and soft. I mean, the Holy Spirit was the agent of creation, right? Think about it. Scripture says the earth was without form and void, a giant waste, and it was the Spirit of God hovering above the waters, which brought such power that it brought these unrained chaos into order. That's the power we're talking about. So the Holy Spirit, though, the problem that people have with the Holy Spirit is they have to give up control. See, religion is fine, Sheila, as long as I stay in control. They're not required to submit or surrender to that higher power. They like to talk about that higher power, but that's still something that they're in control of, right? Like when you go to AA, you choose your own higher power, right? One guy's higher power might be a tree. Another guy's higher power might be the girl he's having sex with. Another guy's higher power may be Jesus or maybe some other religious figure, you know, but they're still in control of it. Problem with the Holy Spirit is man is not in control anymore. Man yields control to God. Who's God in the earth today? God in the earth today is God the Holy Spirit. And yes, he's going to require that you have to do some things before men that make you look foolish before the flesh because the flesh is full of pride, right? And that's the biggest stumbling block that people have with the Holy Spirit. It's in their pride and their arrogance. They don't want to yield and they don't want to submit. And they don't want to look foolish to other men. And babbling in unknown tongues and prophesying looks foolish to the carnal mind. Paul made, wrote that out clear in Corinthians. And this is what I tell people when they're on the tongues, the tongues, the tongues. Why are they hung up on the tongues? Because they're proud, because they're arrogant, because they don't want to look foolish in front of their friends. Well, then you know what? You're not worthy of Christ, my friend. The scripture says the foolishness of preaching God has chosen to save them that believe, right? Paul says in Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God and the wisdom of God is foolishness with man. These two things are clashing up against each other. The problem with those people today who want to call themselves Christians but who deny the power of the Holy Spirit and the rulership and the leadership of the Holy Spirit is they want to have God but they still want to look nouveau to man. They want man's respect as well. What did Jesus have to say about hypocrites? who claim to follow God, but yet their real motivation is to be accepted by men. Accepted by men, exactly. And don't forget that Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. I never knew you. Depart from me. That's pretty incredible. Wow, the hour just went by so fast. Danny, thank you for coming on the program today. Folks, go to weekendvigilante.com and check out the link to find Dr. Danny Marana's website and information. Shoot him an email and get his books. Amazing 
material. Folks, thank you for tuning into the show tonight. Tune in daily at 6 o'clock here on WWCR. And don't forget, the prayer line is tomorrow and every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Please join us there. Prayer is powerful. And if you have a prayer request, need healing or deliverance, shoot me an email. My contact info is again there at weekendvigilante.com. Thanks for being here tonight, folks. Good night and God bless. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuayle.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.